Praise God. All right, well, let me offer a word of prayer and we'll dig into God's word. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we say there's no one like you. There's no one above you, no one beside you. You have no rivals. You are God alone and worthy to be praised. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who is able to open the seals, to open the scroll. You're the one who's worthy to reign. And you're the one who has purchased us with your blood. We thank you that you have purchased for us a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We shall be with you, O oh Lord, forever in your glory and in your love and full joy and pleasure forevermore. We have this hope because of what you have done in your death and your resurrection and your promise to come again. And because of that, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so we pray uh, as you teach us by your word today, help us to live the lives that you have called us to. Lives worthy of your gospel, worthy of your name. Lives that point away from ourselves and point to you. Help us to do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all for, who've been praying for me this week as I've been fighting off a cold bug of some sort. I, I feel 95% back on my feet, but you can still hear, I trust, um, some congestion. So continue to pray for me through this. And I don't begin to sound like adults on Charlie Brown. Uh, wah, wah, wah. Uh, sound too bad. Thank you for your prayers. We're returning to our study in First Timothy. Uh, you'll recall that we have dedicated this year, the teaching from the pulpit, to thinking about what it means to be the church. And we have, we have decided to do that because we spent the previous two years, like the rest of the country, in quarantine and socially isolated and not going to church. And uh, maybe some fences fell into disrepair. Uh, maybe some habits uh, were developed that aren't particularly good spiritual habits or some habits that used to be true of us, um, we, we have sort of dropped. And so we've been using this year to sort of have a tune-up, as it were. To, to focus our thinking again on what it means to be the people of God and how he has called us to live and how his word instructs us uh, about being the family of God, about being the people of God. Now, we've, we've chosen 1 Timothy. It is one of what's called the pastoral epistles, one of the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They've, they're called that because they're written to pastors and they address pastoral ministry. So if you want to think about how the church is supposed to live and what the church is supposed to be like, no better place to go than to these pastoral letters, right? Now, Paul is the guy who's written this letter. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means he's a, a sent messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's one of those early Christian leaders who really had authority in the church to structure the church, to set up the church, uh, to teach the church the truth about the gospel, about Jesus, and the truth about how we are supposed to live. And so part of his ministry was traveling around, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and starting churches. And he had a way of going back to check on the churches, sometimes physically, sometimes in writing. He's left this young man named Timothy, who the letter is named after, in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a lot like Washington, D.C. 
all kinds of people there, a fairly uh, rich city, a fairly powerful city in the ancient world. And Timothy is there pastoring this church. And Timothy is discovering that pastoral ministry ain't easy. It ain't easy, right? So right from the break in chapter one, Paul has to address some things like there are people in the church who want to teach what they want to teach, but don't know what they're talking about. And Paul, like, you got to shut that down, right? Because they're not only going astray, they're leading other people astray. And apparently there's some problems in the church, in the church now. See, church folk got their problems, right? There are problems in the church with men arguing and quarreling. This is why he says in chapter two, I want men everywhere to lift their hands in prayer without arguing and fighting. And there are problems in the church with modesty. Apparently, there are women in the church who are immodest, not necessarily um, bare, but at least immodest in terms of how much money they're spending on their clothes and jewelry. And Paul says, dress yourself not with costly clothing and jewelry, but dress yourself with what's fitting for women who profess godliness. Dress yourself with good deeds and self-control. And then apparently, there are some rich people in the church who want to be in control. You're a good son. Thank you. There's some rich people in the church who want to be in control. You know, every once in a while, people with a little bit of money think they ought to be able to call shots, right? And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Remind them folks not to trust their riches. This is over in chapter six. I'm giving you a commercial. Not to trust their riches, which fly away, right? But to be generous toward everybody on every occasion, right? And so he's telling Timothy, who we believe to be a young man, maybe about 40, uh, he's telling Timothy, who also has a reputation for being a little bit timid, you know, he doesn't seem to like conflict. He's saying, Timothy, stand flat-footed, teach the word of God, devote yourself to the public teaching of scripture, the reading of scripture, and command and teach these folks to live the way God has called us to live. Now, when we come to chapter five, Paul has really given us two things that we could hang the whole chapter on. If you want to understand chapter five, there are two things to keep in mind. Number one, the, the main sort of picture in chapter five is family. He's saying that the church is a family, right? Not, not that it's like a family. It is one. It's a spiritual family. And the, and the thing that he says, number two, throughout this chapter in different ways is that if you want to know how to treat God's family, you can put it in one word, the word honor, honor. So in chapters one and two, he talks about what it looks like to honor across generation and across gender. Encourage older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Then he comes to verse three, you'll notice there, which is the context for our sermon this morning, and he talks about honor the widows, pay respect to women who are truly widows. And then when you come down to verse 17, he begins to talk about the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, and there the key word, the key idea there is honor. An elder who serves well is worthy of double honor. So he says, now in the family of God, Relationships are defined by honor, by respect, by mutual encouragement. Now, the last time we looked at 1 Timothy two weeks ago, we went verses 3 to 10, 
And there, uh, Paul was talking about how to take care of older widows. He draws a distinction between the older widows and the younger widows. But when we looked at his discussion of the older widows, we, we saw really um, some assumptions there that we need to make explicit, some assumptions about family and sort of the theology of family, right? Four real quick points by way of review. Number one, we saw that, as we said, the church is a spiritual family. It's as Paul says back in chapter three, the household of God, right? Number two, the spiritual family includes natural families, biological families, husbands, wives, children, etc. Number three, the spiritual family should only replace the natural family when there isn't one. That's how he defined a true widows, widows who are truly widows. These are women who not only have lost their spouse, but they don't have any children or any other family on whom they can depend. And Paul has said, those are the widows that the church has, a, has to have a special concern for because they don't have a natural family. They only have the spiritual family of God, right? So the church, uh, the spiritual family should only place the natural family when there isn't one. Here's the fourth thing then. The spiritual family should encourage natural families in their responsibilities. Not take over and replace it, but encourage it. This is why he says now, if you are, are able-bodied, working adult, et cetera, and your mom is a widow, you have a responsibility to care for them. This is why y'all went, mm, when Krista recited verse 8, when he says there, if a man doesn't take care of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, how we care for our families is a demonstration of how well we walk with Jesus, right? And, and if we wish to see um, people be well and flourish according to God's design, we cannot ignore the importance of the family and, and the sort of teaching toward and the establishment of family. And that's some of the ground that we covered last time. And now we come to verse 11 or verse 10, excuse me. And Paul here is now sort of shifting to, or excuse me, verse 11, shifting to a discussion not of the older widows, which he defined in verse 9 as over 60 in part. Now he's talking about the younger widows, women who have lost their husbands who are younger than 60. And he's telling the church how to care for them. So look with me in verse 11 but refused to enroll younger widows. There was a list of widows who were, that was kept by the church, and those were the widows, the true widows, the over 60 widows who uh, had lived a faithful Christian life that the church was now caring for. So when he's talking about enrolling the widows, that's the list that he's talking about. So refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed um, after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those, those who are truly widows. Now, 
I think we can sort of organize this passage of scripture into two simply stated points. Point number one in verses 11 to 13, don't create dependency. Don't create dependency in how you care for younger widows, how you care for families. Number two, do create families. Do create families, verses 14 to 16. So don't create dependency on the church when it shouldn't be the case, but do create families for the meeting of personal needs. Let's look at this. I say don't create dependency because of the basic command that Paul gives us in verse 11. He says, refuse to enroll younger widows, right? May be tempted to it. You may see some good in it. Um, there may be some pressure to take care of folks because you're, you're feeling bad for that status. But he says, now refuse that. Don't do that, right? Hold back from putting younger widows on the list of widows that the church is supposed to care for. And then he explains why. Gives us three reasons there uh, in verses 11 through 12. Number one is that they will likely desire to remarry. They will likely desire to remarry, which is a, a good and godly and natural desire. But the desire to remarry, or real talk, you never been married. The desire to marry the first time can pull a young person away from Christ. A desperation can grow that makes them vulnerable to temptation and passion. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes has this chorus in that, in that letter. He keeps saying, do not awaken love before it's time. Do not awaken love before it's time. Don't be toying around in the romantic and the erotic before you're married, right? A young widow now has already awakened love appropriately. Right? She's already had those desires, had those experiences. That's already a part of her life. And once awakened, that desire and that temptation can have both strong pull and serious spiritual consequence. Sometimes people would rather have sex than have a savior. Paul is just being very real about this. He says their desire to marry will cause them to pull away from their faith. And so the Bible says, don't put young widows on the list of widows because they will start living like married people without remarrying. And that brings condemnation. Let your eyes drop down to 1 Timothy 5, verse 15. There Paul says, for some have already strayed after Satan. That's striking because it means that falling away from the faith, a fancy word for that is apostasy, falling away from the faith can happen either because of bad doctrine, which we see back in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Remember Hymenaeus and Alexander who have shipwrecked their faith? It can happen either because of bad doctrine or it can happen because of bad desire. It can happen because of bad desires. That's what Paul is concerned here about for these young widows. They may be drawn away because Satan is exploiting a good desire, but twisting it to a sinful lifestyle. So if you're thinking this morning or rethinking 
some of your Christian beliefs or feel like you might be changing some of what you consider to be appropriate Christian behavior, can I encourage you not to use the word that's so popular nowadays for that? Don't, don't use the word deconstruction for that. Not that there's anything wrong with the word. The word's fine. But like a lot of words that get popular, a whole lot of different things hide out behind the word. Right? So what I want to encourage you to do, if, if that's happening, if you're rethinking some things, use the, use the language of doctrine or belief and, and behavior. I'm rethinking this particular belief. I'm rethinking this particular behavior. Be specific about what you're rethinking. Don't, don't use vague theological, thought, theological language to hide sinful behavior. Don't, don't use God talk to sort of paper over desires that really should be sanctified, right? Should be sifted by God's word. There's a lot of word games happening in the world today. There's a lot of word games happening in the church and in individual spiritual lives. And the result of it in so many cases, is just damage and confusion. So I just want to encourage us, don't, don't camouflage what's really going on. If you're rethinking the Trinity, say, I'm rethinking the Trinity, and come, let, me, let us help you as pastors think about the Trinity more carefully. If you're rethinking dating, come, let's talk about rethinking dating, and let's talk about whether or not you, the way you're thinking about dating is actually sound and biblical and healthy, or the way you're thinking about dating, ah, that's worldly. You're flirting with some stuff you shouldn't be flirting with. You're doing some stuff that you know is forbidden. Let's have the honest conversation about what's really going on because the Bible here is telling us in verses 11 and 12 that this kind of word trickery leads to a departing from the faith. And beloved, you don't want that for yourself and we don't want that for you either, right? And so he says it's better to remarry than to be on this list of widows because sometimes you put someone on the list of widows and they've still got this desire and, and that begins to sort of draw them away in a way that contradicts their claim to faith. You tracking with me? Here's the second thing. He says, don't put them on the list of widows because it, it creates idle time. And with that idle time, there are certain sins that sometimes crop up with that too, right? He says there, look with me, uh, in verses 12 and 13 again, he says, uh, or verse 13, excuse me. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So we don't want to put people on the list of widows when they are young and capable and have so much contribution to still make and so much flourishing that's ahead of them, because in that, putting them on the list of widows, they become sort of dependent upon the church, and in that dependence upon the church, they become idle. They become habitually lazy. That's what idle means. They become habitually lazy instead of fruitful. Now, now, hear what Paul is assuming here. Let's just sort of draw something out very explicitly. Paul does not assume that because a young woman or a young man has lost their spouse, that their life is over. He does not assume that they are now somehow disqualified for fruitfulness and productivity and joy. He assumes that there is still yet a good life for them. 
there is still yet God's blessing for them. There is still yet God's ability to use them to contribute both to their lives and to the lives of others. He, he assumes that there's still yet love and capacity for love that ought to actually be matured and multiplied. They're not on the shelf. They're not on the B team. They're not backup players. They're not broken players. They're not people who are somehow less desirous, less um, capable than people who have not been married or have not lost. No, that ain't the way the gospel works. That ain't the way God's love works. That ain't over, right? And so that's the assumption behind this and why he's saying, no, don't create a dependency that leads to people being idle rather than being fruitful. You see, dependency teaches you see how he puts it there? They learn to be idlers. That wasn't what they were. That's what having, not having the responsibility of providing and building family, that's what you learn. That's what you pick up. You learn how to sit home and eat bonbons and watch the stories. Right? That wasn't what you was as a kid. As a kid, you always was running around trying to play with somebody and do something with you. You know, so even as little children, you were active and fruitful and productive in the ways kids ought to be, right? As young people, you had aspirations and dreams. You wanted this kind of job. You wanted to make that kind of money. You wanted to go to these kinds of places, right? You actually have to be taught to be lazy, most of us. And, and the only thing that allows for that is dependency. Having too much time on your hands without worrying about providing for yourself or the consequences of not providing. So he said, don't create a situation of dependency. Notice what happens. They, they, they learn to be idlers, and then they start to feel entitled. This is what I think Paul is hitting at when he says they go from house to house. I think it's likely the case that as a young woman who was uh, widowed in that society, you probably then, you had no family of your own, you probably went to live with other families in the church. And you live with that family for a period, and maybe, maybe you, you sort of wore out your welcome or something, and then you went and lived with another family. You the same thing over there. You would live with another family, right? The Greek word for that is mooching. <laughs> they mooching on folks from house to house, man, trying to get over, right? Nothing wrong with living with a family, but ideally you should have lived with that one family or maybe two families for until you got married again, right? But just house to house thing speaks of a certain kind of entitlement. She's bumming. And if the church allows this, it is really destroying this woman's potential. It's destroying her capacity to flourish as God wants her to. And look at the third thing that, that sort of follows from this. They become gossips and busybodies. All that free time, mooching off others. They, they didn't start talking about people. They share things about people that they have no business sharing. They start stirring up strife and drama. Isn't it interesting how often people without enough to do end up creating problems for people minding their own business? That's what's happening in the church. Let's see, now all of this, the dependency, the entitlement, and the sin of gossip and, and, and all of that stuff is caused by putting this person on the list of widows to be cared for when she should be encouraged to pursue a life of fruitfulness. 
a couple of applications there. Number one, I think this means that the church has to be wise in its benevolence and its charity. Every act of helping doesn't help. There's some efforts to help that hurt. And I think when it comes to the church's benevolence and the church's charity, the church's service, we actually have to want the biggest good for the person, not the most immediate good, right? So we have to want to see the person flourish as God intends. We, we want to see them grow as disciples. We want to, now remember the vision for uh, widows in this chapter, that the vision here is the older woman who, you know, in verses um, 9 and 10 has raised her children, has cared for strangers, has done all kinds of good works, who, who has still lived the life over the years that is befitting the gospel. That's where we're trying to get people to go, male and female, right? So now that should shape then how we do benevolence. Right? We, we can meet an immediate need, yes, but we need to do that with a vision for that person becoming the kind of older man that has gravitas, that, that has dignity, the kind of older woman who is like Miss Cauley, regal, loves the word, put together. You'll never see her off her game, man. You'll never see her off her game and a husband just like her, right? That's what we're growing people to, right? So our care for people has to take that into account. How we do something like benevolence has to take that into account. We, we can never in the name of helping, particularly inside the church, we can never in the name of helping depart the agenda of disciple making, right? We, we can't lay aside the growth that Jesus wants in our character just so that we can feel good about helping someone. Because that's going to be hurting someone. So the first thing that we want to do is something we want to avoid. We want to not create dependency. Instead, we want to create families. We want to create families. That's what Paul goes on to say there, beginning in verse 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, let's stop a minute and think about what we're thinking about. Here's a text in the Bible where if we're not careful, we will hear worldly ideas, not biblical ideas. It'd be easy to hear this verse as some version of women should stay at home barefoot and pregnant. I see head nodding. I see some, some folks are already fighting that temptation, right? That kind of prejudice and oppression of women has colored the reading of many biblical texts for both men and women. So for men, men can take a text like this and, and read male dominance into it or define these tasks, having children, care for children, take care of the household, as women's work. So the text becomes a pretext for chauvinism and sinful patriarchy. Or because of the attitudes of some men, women now can read a text like this and resent it, which is ironic 
because women can resent, resent this text while actually wanting what the text holds out. Women can do a lot of pushing against the culture's twisting of marriage, so much so that they fight the culture war in their marriage. They refuse to honor a husband because they don't want to be thought of as a doormat. Or they refuse to be a helper to a husband. Or they refuse, even in a dating relationship, to, to sort of strike that posture in any degree because ain't no man going to walk all over me. But as a consequence, there's many a godly man that strolled through your life, but you didn't really see him because you were seeing what the culture has done to pervert marriage. So we want to be careful that we read the text well. What it, did Paul have in mind here? Was it that chauvinism or that culture war stuff? And is that how a renewed mind reads this text? No, no, absolutely not. What is the Bible actually saying? Remember the context. Paul is addressing how to care for widows. Widows would have been particularly vulnerable in that society. Nobody else to depend on. Now, the fact that Paul is addressing care for widows at all means Paul is someone who cares for the poor and vulnerable, right? If, if you had to sort of write a letter to someone today to tell them how to be a healthy church, how to be an effective church, and you got around to talking about how the church should care for each other, don't raise your hands, but ask yourself the question, would you have even brought up widows? You probably would have talked about children's ministry and youth ministry, and a lot of other ministries that are designed to get butts in the seat. You might have been doing a whole lot of nickels and noses, right? But the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the quartet of the vulnerable wouldn't have been on most of our list. Paul gets this knock for being a patriarchal, misogynist, etc. But when you read his letter, he's the one always caring for people that the rest of us forget about. So he's, keep in mind the context, he's caring for women, he's caring for the poor, he's caring for the widows, he's addressing their case because he cares and he cares because God cares. And so what he recommends here is the creation of families for two reasons based on this text. Number one, for the young widow's social needs or social and material needs. And number two, for the young widow's spiritual needs. He's got her social needs in mind. He's got her spiritual needs in mind. And this is why he's recommending marriage. So let's take the social needs. He says, I would have a young, younger widows to marry, bear children, manage their household. By God's design, the family was and is the unit most responsible for meeting the social and material needs of individual members of it. It's not the state. Primarily and fundamentally, it is the family. We, we get almost everything that matters to us from our families. We get our names from our families. We get our identities from our families. In the world in which Paul is writing to the, and the Jewish culture in which he's writing, which is highly tribal, you would have not only gotten your name and your identity from your family, you would have even gotten your occupation from your family. So if your daddy was a sheep herder, you were going to be a sheep herder. If your daddy was a blacksmith, you were going to be a blacksmith. That's how it worked. And often you would get land from your family. You'd inherit the family land and you would get wealth from your family. 
when it came time to get your inheritance. The family would be the social safety net, the material safety net in times of tragedy, tragedy, as in the case of someone losing their spouse. So look with me at verse 16. See what, see what Paul says there. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. What's the assumption there? The family is the safety net. You've got a mother or, or a grandmother who's a widow. That falls to your family to care for in God's design, biblically, right? So if you wanted to do well in life, based on those assumptions, or if you wanted to recover from tragedy, like losing your spouse, the most important thing you could do is marry and marry well, right? Because marriage is about more than romance. In fact, romance won't pay the bills. It really won't. It's the other stuff of marriage, commitment, productivity, responsibility, that turns out to be the most important stuff of marriage, okay? So by God's design, he wants, he wants women to marry. Now notice the second thing here in terms of this, the social needs. Marriage was and is also connected with maturity. Marriage was and is connected with maturity. Think back to verses 11 to 13. Got those young idle widows, risk getting into a lot of petty stuff, immature stuff. And the Bible's response is, have them marry, bear children, uh, manage their households. Now, let's be real clear. Marrying, having children, and managing a household is not the biblical definition of womanhood. You may be an entirely whole and healthy and flourishing and fulfilled woman as God designs and not marry or not have children or not be managing a household. Okay? So marriage is not, you know, these are the starters and the, and the unmarried are, are the substitutes. That's not, that's not how that works in God's design. Each is its own calling for whatever period of life you're in it right? And each has its blessings and each has its challenges, okay? So in, in committing this, Paul is not saying you, you're not whole till you're married. That's a lie from the pits of hell, right? That's, that's the idolatry of marriage that is in so many Christian circles, okay? That's not what he's saying. He is saying, though, that, that if, if you've had these kinds of issues, gossiping, busybody, mooching, that grows up out of a dependence, a wrong dependence on the church or someone else, the fix to that issue is responsibility. The fix to that issue is responsibility, which takes the form of marriage and bearing children and managing your household, being fruitful in all those things that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? So that's what he's saying. There's a lot of growing up that happens in marriage. Oh, I should have had some testimony right there. I should have had, I should have had some amens. Okay, it's a little sore for some of y'all too soon. So don't, don't say nothing. Don't look left. Don't look right. Just look at me. Just look at me. Just look at me, right? So this is a little pastoral work right here. Because sometimes people say, I'm not ready to get married. And that may be a perfectly fine thing to say. But I, I'd want to go on and have a little bit more conversation with you. 
Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Now, there may be some very good reasons why someone says, I'm not ready to get married, and you discover those good reasons. You're like, okay, cool. You, you know your life. You're, you're being honest with your heart. Stay that course, right? But then there are some reasons that people have and say they don't want to get married that, that actually are the kinds of things that are more closely associated with immaturity, right? And in some of those cases, what I want to say to you is actually marriage is the fix to your problem right? If you'll embrace it, if you'll embrace the challenge of marriage, if you'll embrace the, the grace of marriage, right? And sometimes people have like wrong or incomplete list of goals for marriage. We ask them, you know, why, why do you want to be married? Right? So here's the opposite problem. Why, why do you want to be married? And I said, well, basically, I, I think it'll make me happy. Oh, see, now I got some testimony. I got a lot, got a lot of them. No, uh-uh. What you quickly discover is marriage is more fundamentally designed to make you holy than to make you happy, right? Now, if you're not interested in holiness, you're going to be unhappy in marriage, right? If you're not interested in your selfishness being sanctified, if you're not interested in your individualism being sanctified, right? If, you, if you're not interested in your spending habits being sanctified, right? If, if you're not interested in your cleaning habits being sanctified, right? Marriage ain't the place for you because there's going to be somebody else right there full time reminding you, you need to be sanctified, right? But if we love God, we love holiness. And we would not resent marriage being the theater in which God creates and displays our holiness as we live together with others reflecting the gospel, Right? So marriage might actually be part of the answer to your problem of sanctification and growth and holiness if you will embrace it as a grace for that instead of just moving toward it as a kind of idol, a romantic Hollywood-fashioned idol. Marriage is good, and it helps us with our maturity. And beloved, this is not just a, an implication from the scripture I'm a recovering social scientist by training. I will tell you that all the social science research is unequivocal in, in demonstrating that a healthy marriage, keyword healthy, underline, underline, a healthy marriage produces all kinds of good outcomes associated with maturity and productivity and flourishing. Poverty goes down in a healthy marriage. Housing stability increases. Food security increases. Teen pregnancy goes down. Men work more and earn more. Ownership of homes and cars goes up. Edu educational achievement of children goes up. Almost every measure of human well-being is improved by a healthy family, a healthy marriage. It promotes flourishing, and this shouldn't surprise the Christian because God designed it because God designed it. It's the way he ordered our lives to be lived. And this is why it's recommended to young widows that they remarry. Their social and material needs are met, but also their spiritual needs. Notice now, this is what the Bible's ultimately concerned about. First Timothy 5, 14 and 15. This is you marry, have children, run your household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after 
Satan. We might put it very simply this way. A healthy marriage silences the devil. It silences the devil. It shuts his mouth. It takes away Satan's opportunity to run the Christian down, to slander us, to speak bad of us. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's always prowling, looking for someone to tear down. He loves, if Satan could be said to love anything, he loves to do that with a family. If he can destroy a family, if he can prevent the formation of a family, think of how many lives he can damage by that one act, by that one assault. No wonder we see him in the garden attacking the very first marriage, coming between Adam and Eve. We're not ignorant of his devices, and he ain't got no new tricks. He's still doing the same stuff, convincing people that they are better apart than together, convincing people that they shouldn't trust each other, convincing people that the other is trying to get over on them, to take from them, etc., convincing people that selfishness is a better road than mutuality and mutual dependence. They ain't changed their strategy one bit. And, and, and if we're honest, we have to say with Paul, he has been in some measure successful. No, notice, notice what Paul says there in verse 15. Some have already strayed after Satan. He made himself appear as an angel of light. He made himself appear as a giver of wisdom. He made himself appear to be on your side. He made it seem as though it didn't take all of that. He said, there's a broad road over here. Take the wide path. But God's already told us that that broad road leads to destruction. It's the narrow path that leads to life. He's always trying to make you think that what he offers you is easier and better than what God calls you to. But beloved, God is good. Satan is evil. God is good in all of his ways. And everything he ordains is right. It's going to be good for you and me to follow God because that is the path of his blessing. That's the path of flourishing. Now, don't miss this. We said this two weeks ago. It bears repeating again. That one of the main battlegrounds in spiritual warfare is the family and the home. You will perhaps be most attacked when it comes to marriage and family. Whether that's the way Satan uses temptation to try and get you to get married stuff before you're married. Or that's the way he uses temptation to get you to forget what you have in marriage and to go after broken cisterns, to drink from other wells. Or whether that's the way he keeps you in marriage and tempts you to kill each other. Right? He's going to be assaulting this idea. He's going to be laying traps around this idea. He's going to be trying to exploit your desires, often God-given desires. He don't care that God gave you the desire. He just cares that he can twist it. So this is where we need to gird up and put on the full armor of God and understand ourselves to be in a spiritual warfare and understand ourselves to be blessed of God, whether we are married or single, 
whether we are divorced or our spouses live, that we are blessed of God and that God wants good for us and that that good is found in the path that God has marked out for us. All the other roads are broad and lead to destruction. But the road of Christ is narrow and leads to life. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, what I just said, may, you may not have context for. What he's talking about this broad road and this narrow road. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells in the Bible. When he, when he sort of describes that there are basically only two ways to live, right? You, you can live your own way. And there are many ways to live your own way, right? There are many paths you can take going your own way. So it's a broad road. And, and it looks like it's a smooth road. There are not many hills to it. There are no potholes. I mean, it's what you want, right? And so that, that looks like the good way. And it's the, it's the path of ease. But at the end of it, because God doesn't travel that road, you have traveled it away from God. At the end of it is destruction. In other words, God's judgment is eternal and final judgment because you rejected him. You rejected his son, Jesus, and what Jesus did for you on the cross and dying for your sins, and you rejected his lordship. When he, he created you and he has sent his son to die for you. He, he bought you with the blood of his son. He owns you. But the broad path says, no, I own myself. I go my own way. And the end of that is destruction. But now there's another road. And it's narrow. It's tight. It's like D.C. streets when people parking in the middle of the street. You can't have get by. I mean, it's, you know, you got to sometimes negotiate that road. It's rough. It's a rough road. It's a road that includes suffering and hardship. It's a road that includes hard choices. It's easy over there, but over here you got to make some hard choices. And so Jesus says that road is narrow. It feels narrow. It feels tight. It's tight, beloved, but it's right. And that road, because Jesus himself walks that path, because Jesus has suffered in our place, because he has taken our sins upon himself and our judgment for the sins that we did on the cross, and because he died for us and God raised him from the, the dead three days later, that narrow road actually leads to life, abundant life and eternal life as God wants you to have. And so I'm just here to tell you what Jesus tells us in the Bible. Choose Jesus and the narrow road so that you might live forever and live abundantly with God. Don't choose the road of destruction. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, he said two things, basically. That we would repent of our sins, confess them as wrong, and turn away from them. Yes, I was on the broad road. We all were. I was on the broad road. That's wrong. Let me turn back around and get back over here on this narrow road where Jesus is, that we would turn and that we would believe, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins personally, was raised from the grave three days later, and is the Lord who rules all of creation, including you and me that we would believe that and follow him in faith. That leads to life. And the Father extends that life to you now. All you would need to do is repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will have life.
If you want to know more about that, talk to any of the Christians here this morning. Talk to me after the service. We'd like nothing more than to help you into the road that leads to life. And Christian, a couple of more applications for us, and then we're done. I'm out your way. But you, you, you don't believe preachers when they say that, but really. <laughs> Three quick applications, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper and we'll be out of here. Think about what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I want, I want younger widows to marry. Don't put them on a list of widows, right? That creates some problems. Instead, I want them to create families. Well, what does that imply? Well, here's one thing that I think I want to make explicit that we need to think carefully and biblically about who is marriageable, about who is marriage material. What a terrible, terrible phrase. We need to think carefully about that. I mean, if you're here and you're entertaining marriage, do widows make your radar? Do single mothers make your radar? Or have you been thinking in some unbiblical way that, that such people are somehow damaged goods? That's not a gospel way of thinking. I mean, in the gospel, we're all damaged. And God loves us and redeems us. And marriage is meant to be a picture of that, right? All you ever have in marriage are two broken people. Right, who if they are whole at all, they found their wholeness in Jesus. So, so who's on your radar when you think about marriage? Right, there's this idea that I think is just sort of oxygen in the culture, where the ideal marriage partner is unblemished and unspotted, you know, a virgin and whatever, however you think about that. In all the little picture books that we read to our children, Prince Charming has never failed in a fight and the damsel in distress has never been touched by a man, right? Okay, look, beloved, that ain't gonna happen for most of us. Really, real talk, right? That ain't gonna happen for most of us. And if we're walking around with that thinking in the back of our heads, we're always kind of, comparing real people to a mythical idea. And this is how we get the problem where brothers are like a four, but they're waiting on a 10. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all know what I'm talking about? And here's the irony. The brother who knows he's a four actually normally gets the 10, right? He'd be like, why she with him? Because he treated her like a real person. And discovered some tens that had nothing to do with outward adornment, braided hair, and costly clothes. But had everything to do with godliness, industry, beauty. So when Paul says that young women, young widows should marry, who do you think they're getting married to? They're getting married to Christian men in the church. So such sisters need to be on the radar of godly men. I realize I should back up a second too. Brothers, some of y'all need a radar. But we get to who own it, we got to get you one, right? Some of us need to actually stop the sort of, you know, perpetual adolescence and, and really sort of embrace the call to maturity 
and a reflection of manhood, not manhood itself, but a reflection of manhood that is about marriage and family. Right? Okay, all right. Number two, <laughs> number two, number two. We've already said, desire to marry for the right reasons. Two of those reasons could be to grow up and to stay out of social and spiritual trouble. Those are good reasons. In fact, that's, that's part of the reason Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says it's better to marry than to burn, right? Folks catching themselves in temptation, uh, you know, et cetera. They're struggling, but also trying not to be married. Paul, like, look, mar now let's be clear. Marriage won't fix your lust problem. Marriage won't fix your lust problem. But the only place to find a godly expression of sexual desire is marriage, right? So if you got the desire, but you're kicking against marriage, you're putting yourself in trouble. You're putting yourself in trouble, right? So we should desire to marry for good reasons, to grow up and to stay out of spiritual trouble. Marriage is for our sanctification, as we said. It's to make us holy, not just happy. And do we desire holiness so much that we can endure a little unhappiness in marriage? Number three, we have to double down on family formation as a central aspect of disciple making. We, we got to double our investment on, not in an idolatrous way, and not in a way that assumes marriage is for everybody or that singleness is incompletion or something. So I, I, you guys, I think you've heard me on this enough to know that's not what I'm saying. But if we want to see the flourishing of our neighborhood and the flourishing of our community, beloved, we got to stop sort of treating marriage and family in kind of worldly categories. Right. So so in the world right now, it's, you know, people are are nervous and hesitant to say that the best situation for a child to be raised in is to be raised by their married biological parents. That's just scientific truth, actually. In addition to biblical truth. But because there's been so much carnage in marriage, so much damage in marriage, people have had so many hurts, real hurts in marriage, abandonment, betrayal that leads to divorce and some of that very legitimate divorces, et cetera, because there's been so much pain out there and because our families now are structured in so many different ways with grandmama raising kids or single moms or single dads or, you know, fictive king, you know, black folk got all kind of kin people we make up, right? So you got, you know, uncle this, uncle that ain't related to nobody, right? So we got all these arrangements. This is why I need us to understand. Those arrangements are adaptations trying to sort of repair the model. And that's fine. We, 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 we want people to step up into the gap with family. We want to be family. I'm, I'm not diminishing that, but it's not a replacement. It's not a replacement for God's design. And so while we encourage all of those other sort of um, uh, family arrangements and, and, and family structures, and, and while we praise God for the resilience that, that that shows, we still also have to work for the repair of what's broken. We're never going to produce the fruit we could produce by substituting God's way with our way. 
We can do some good, a lot of good, not emphasizing marriage, and nobody would be upset with us. We wouldn't do the best good, beloved. We wouldn't do the most good. This is the harder way, but it's the right way. And so when Paul comes to talking about sort of what to do with younger widows, he encourages marriage. Let me give you a little historical footnote on ARC, and I really am done, I'm gonna pray. On ARC, um, you guys all know our five M's. If you're new to the church, we have five sort of objectives that are our strategies for ministry, if you will. We get them from one of the pastoral letters from the book of Titus. Um, we talk about the, the message of the gospel. We talk about uh, multiplying leaders in churches, uh, sending missionaries to the end of the earth. Uh, we talk about showing mercy to our neighbors. And we talk about maturity, maturing spiritually. I'll just give you a little historical footnote. Maturity wasn't the original end. When I first sat down with Matt Schmucker and his wife, Eli, and uh, Trip Lee and, and Chelsea Schmucker, and I don't know, that, that first group of about 10 or 15 of us, Jahil Richards and others, Mel and Chelsea Schmucker's house. She lived right across from Anacostia High School. She was a teacher at the high school at the time. And it's the first time I shared publicly how I was thinking about the church and, and vision for the church. And I did it in the form of these five hymns. The M originally was men women, and family. Because I think when you look at what Paul recommends here, what he recommends in Titus and epistles, and when, again, when you think about our context and, and what we, what we want to see happen in our context, we got to be real clear. We need men to do well. We need black and brown men to do well, especially. As men flourish, so do families flourish, right? I mean, I grew up, my dad in and out, left when I was 13, so completely out by that point. But I used to hear my mom in her frustration, used to say stuff like, I can do bad all by myself. I don't need no peace of man. I didn't get it all at eight or 12, but by 15, I like, I ain't gonna be no peace of man. Whatever that is, I ain't delivering nobody pizza. I, you know, I ain't gonna be no peace of man. I ain't never seen my dad deliver pizza, but apparently he doing that on the side and my mama don't like it. But she like, <laughs> but she like, I don't need no peace of man, right? I need a man that's serious about family and commitment and marriage and doing the things that we're supposed to do as responsible adults, right? So our families flourish as our men flourish. And we, we've got to not lose that in having shifted to a simpler little phrase there, maturity. We, we've got to not lose that. We've we got to be brothers who help each other flourish as men of God. And we got to be brothers who encourage each other in treating our sisters with absolute purity and marrying and building family and knowing that that's all a part of the good life that God has for us, right? And knowing that, you know, it's not, that that's not the product of hearing harps and being shot by Cupid. That's the product of just being regular people who are godly and love what God loves, right? So I'm done. I don't know how else to conclude this sermon, so let's pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we pray that you would use this any way you please. Co correct anything I said that was wrong or out of proportion, or just right now, snatch that from everybody's mind. 
And Lord, uh, whatever is good and right and lovely, whatever is praiseworthy, grant us grace to think on those things, to hold fast to it and to apply it to our lives, to, to walk it out by grace, Lord. Free us from perfectionism and free us from performance. Lord, there's, there's nothing more real than being someone who's lost a spouse, right? That, that, that's deep. That pain, that loss, that emptiness. There's nothing more real and sometimes confusing than grief. And the way the grief of loss will make us act out in unhealthy ways or sometimes even or it cause us to doubt your goodness. So we're, we're we're not talking about widows in some abstract, conceptual way. We praise God for our sister's testimony this morning. We didn't know we were going to hear that testimony. She didn't know she was going to hear this sermon. I, I pray, I pray, I pray it encourages her. Just as she encouraged us, Lord. We pray a special blessing on our sister's life, Lord. We thank you for the light that she testified to earlier, and we we pray that that light would be bright in each of us, Lord. We all need your light in, in particular ways. And so I'm just, I'm thinking about the single fathers who are here this morning and the single moms. I'm thinking about those who are divorced or widowed and those who are married but struggling and uh, those who are doing all right and those who are doing good. We, we're all in our different circumstances, are still in need of you. And so we praise you that you're God who is sufficient in every way and powerful in every way and good in every way that you can meet all of our different needs. We pray that you would and you'd help us to be the church we're meant to be. Help us to be the family of God that shows honor to everyone in their particular circumstance, Lord. Help us to do that and not to grow tired of doing good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.